There's always a call to greatness with anything in my life that starts out as stress. I can have the external circumstances traumatize me or evolve me. That's Cy Wakeman, drama researcher, leadership consultant, and New York Times bestselling author. And the more evolved you are, the more you can walk through the world unaffected. Like you can walk through the world with love and no reaction to unloving things. I'm Jessica Mogul, head of coaching strategy at Crisp, the nation's number one law firm growth company. Alongside Michael Mogul, we've built this business through practice, not theory. Crisp started with just $500 to Michael's name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, we sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I am taking over today's podcast with Cy Wakeman to discuss the difference between self-soothing and self-care, why overgiving can sometimes cause more harm than good, and how to evolve the way we practice gratitude. We are so quick to name things that happen externally, good, bad. We name people idiots, jerks, geniuses, if they think like us. We're so good at trying to name things. So what I tell people, if you want to improve your state of happiness, stop naming things too soon. Stay curious one minute longer. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Cy Wigman is a workplace drama expert, leadership and team culture consultant, and New York Times bestselling author. Her upcoming book, Life's Messy, Live Happy, journeys into some uncharted territory for this game changer. I began our conversation by asking Cy what motivated her to write this book. As with anything, it isn't a single event. It's been definitely a journey. I proposed a book called Reality-Based Living, 10 years ago. When my second book came out, Reality-Based Rules of the Workplace, I proposed reality-based living and just some rules for life. And at the time, people really wanted it to be work-focused. I think it's the work of the ego that we said, let's separate out personal development from professional development and sigh, you know, don't skip genres in the publishing industry. And I'm like, but everybody asks me, how do you do this? So when I present, people tell me that helped at work, but Cy, this has changed my life at home. So they were always translating what I was telling them into their personal life. And they would always ask me, like, how did you learn this? Or they would hear snippets of my life. I think they always assumed my life was easy and good and I had it all handled. And they would hear snippets and they're like, wait a minute, how do you live so happy when even your life is so messy? And so I had pitched it. The publisher was like, now let's say in the business genre, over the pandemic, as my life truly was kind of falling apart again, and when things fall apart, you know, chaos is a fantastic fuel for growth. My publisher called and said, hey, people are really looking at well-being. Do you have anything? And I literally said, you know, I do. And thank goodness I didn't write it 10 years ago because I wasn't ready. 
And I have so much more wisdom to share. So I wrote this book during the pandemic. And it was at a time that I found myself going back to my own roots as a counselor. People didn't want my business advice during the pandemic. They wanted my coaching on how to deliver healthcare when they're exhausted and how to work through grief and how to live in a world that had just gotten pretty crazy. So I jumped in and wrote the book during the pandemic. That's how it came to be. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes. And I I love, even from the very beginning of this book, you talk about the self-imposed suffering. And I think the spectrum of suffering during COVID, of course, has been a wild ride for people. So several people on here might have not been at our 2021 Game Changer Summit. So I'd love for you to get them up to speed and tell me about self-imposed suffering. So what's your take on this? Pain's inevitable. If we're going to be part of the human race, we are going to have loss and we're going to have things that don't go our way, that we're disappointed in. But we extend pain outside of the current moment into suffering. And so suffering is often self-imposed. It's definitely the work of the ego. We take the facts of a situation and we're the ones through our story, we add suffering. We see insults where there isn't any. We add suffering by going back into the past and then projecting out into the future. I think many of us joined a religion of suffering when we were young. And I see us do so many forms of suffering. The ego is so good at suffering. We pre-suffer. Somebody will come to me and they're like, oh my gosh, I was just thinking about next week and I'm just really worried about how it's going to go. And I just imagine it's going to be a disaster. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. It's only Tuesday. How are you today? They're like, I'm awesome. So you had to go looking for suffering to next Tuesday. And that's what the ego does. The ego tries to rob us of the present moment, which in the present moment, we always have everything we need, I promise. Like, And the ego is like, ooh, I'm feeling good. The ego stays alive by suffering. It's its job by eating anger for lunch, by staying mildly disgruntled, by keeping you the victim. So if in the present moment, your life is okay, the ego goes either looking to the past to remember or the ego goes looking to the future. So that's pre-suffering. A lot of people do post-suffering. They're like another wave of COVID. They're like, oh, this is going to be awful, pre-suffering. We don't know. And then it may not be awful, but remember what we went through in March of 2020. And they go back and they post-suffer. And unfortunately, everybody is really good at group suffering. In fact, we don't like to suffer alone. You know, if I see somebody on a Zoom call and they seem pretty happy, I'm like, well, obviously you haven't read the email yet. And I try and like destroy their suffering. Everyone out there listening, catch yourself. Notice when you see somebody happy and you're like, well, they must be ignorant of how bad things really are. Let me fill them in. So we resort to suffering and I think we just unconsciously, we don't even know it. And then we wonder why we're not happy. I'm like, your natural state is happiness. One thing with the projected, I often see team members will project suffering on others. So I think that the team is feeling this. And I'm like, has anyone told you that? There's a lot of projection, not just on yourself, but also on others. And the projection and the suffering comes from a basic thing, just not questioning our own thinking. 
when the pandemic first hit and we had just millions of dollars of business just cancel in two weeks, it would have been easy to go into like, I've lost my business. And in fact, I did. I'm like 20 years. I'm so close to the end of my career. I've lost my business. And I had a lot of suffering around that. I'm like, it was all for naught. And, you know, are we going to get this back? And how are we going to recover? And when I use self-reflection, what do I know for sure? I've lost my business. I didn't know that for sure. I knew that for a while, we had some business that was asking for a different date to present or that it wouldn't be in person, that it might be virtual. And I kept asking myself, like, what do I know for sure? It's not that I've lost my business. That's a big suffering story. What I know for sure is there's people who are still calling me. And what I want to tend to is the question, what could I do to help? And it wasn't trying to nail you down to your contract. And it wasn't trying to say, I'm going to change my business and teach people, you know, Zoom training. And most 50% of my business is in healthcare. And they were reaching out from New York, from Philadelphia, from Washington, exhausted. And they didn't need my business advice. They needed way back when my counseling experience. And so I really started to just forget about, I've lost my business and suffering and just in the moment answer what was needed. How can I help? And then what I started to be able to ask myself is what would great look like? If I were great right now, what would that look like? And I found something opposite and more true for myself. I didn't lose my business. I found my business. And my business, one for myself, was peacefulness in crisis. And my business was to administer to the people at hand. And it ended up being that word pivot, but it wasn't an intentional pivot. It was organic and viral and peaceful and not stressful. And I just started tending to people and then writing about it. And I built a community, Life's Messy, Live Happy. We got together once a month virtually. People just were able to really emerge from this crisis, evolved, use it for a time of growth or not traumatized. And for me, I had to ask myself, I'm like, I was stranded for three months, no airport, I was stranded in uh, Mexico and I had to self-reflect, like I felt like a prisoner. Like there were militia on the beaches. We couldn't walk the beaches. We couldn't go out of our house. We were on total lockdown down here. And I felt like a prisoner. And then I had to question, am I a prisoner or am I on sabbatical? Like I could go through this as a prisoner or a monk, same experience, totally different. If somebody had said, Sai, you have three months, you have to go on sabbatical. I would have said, I can't. I'm running a multi-million dollar business. Everybody depends on me. I can't just go off to an ashram in India. And turns out I could. And it turned out for the better. And that's the illusion. A lot of the ego keeps you in. I need time off to do self-care. And a lot of the ego is like, no, you're indispensable and everything will fall apart if you are not here holding it together. The biggest thing I learned is that business happens with or without me. The universe goes forward with or without me. It was such a relief to find out I didn't quite play the role I thought I played in the hustle. 
That's so fascinating. And it's, it is true. And when you say it that way, it is the ego. The ego is always like, oh, but they can't live without me or it's going to happen this or that. And so one thing too, that you touched on there was self-reflection, because now on this three month sabbatical that you say, you really were forced to self-reflect. And one thing that really stood out to me in your book was you said, you know, you can't vent and self-reflect at the same time. And that really led into those three questions for clarity. And so can you unpack those questions a little bit more? And so how, you know, what do I know for sure? How can I help? What would great look like? How did you kind of evolve to those being your questions? Oh my gosh. It's not only a chapter in the book, it's the topic of my TEDx talk. Like there are these three questions that just kind of unwrapped me. And weirdly enough, like they kind of found me in a variety of ways throughout my life. And now they become like my three questions that I try and walk with all the time. It's like three questions that will change your life. So the first question I use a lot is what do I know for sure? And that question is all about helping me break the trance I'm in with my ego. Like I'll see one thing and my ego adds all of this story and all of this suffering. And to break up with my view of the world when I'm wrapped in ego, I have to ask myself, like, what do I absolutely know for sure? And what happens then is the stress falls away because our stress comes from our story, not our reality. And so whenever I'm feeling stressed, one of my go-to strategies right now is to just self-reflect and say, what do I know for sure? Now, this isn't toxic positivity. No, it's not an excuse for abuse. It is a way of just loosening the ego's grip of your world. The ego sees everything as insult, everything as danger, everything survival mode. And when you see things for how they really are, at least for me, I untap who I really am. And my next question when I am not suffering is, what could I do right now that would help? Sometimes that's staying quiet. Sometimes it's maintaining boundaries and just letting you experience and learn what you're experiencing. But it's always staying non-judgmental and loving and really watching my boundaries. What can I do to help? I have to really watch that it's not over-functioning and it's not controlling and it's not unrequested. Like, how can I hold space and keep separate what's mine and what's theirs? Because what usually comes through in every situation is an opportunity for me not to just help, but for me to evolve. And so I go, what do I know for sure? Break up with the ego. What could I do in this moment that would be helpful? Sometimes it's not saying anything. It's just blessing them invisibly and going on in my way. That helps in the moment, but there's always a call to greatness with anything in my life that starts out as stress, I can have the external circumstances traumatize me or evolve me. And so then that third question I ask is, if I were my best self right now, if I were highly evolved, if I were who I know I am already, what would I be doing? And that is how I can just elevate myself above all the right and wrong and blame. And you know, my favorite quote is, out beyond right and wrong, there is a field, I'll meet you there. And it really helps me unhook and just say, who am I by nature? And how do I want to walk through the world? And my book talks a lot about going inside and self-reflection so that you can forge wisdom, that you can evolve. And the more evolved you are, the more you can walk through the world unaffected. Like you can walk through the world with love and no reaction to unloving things. 
I told you when we started, this is, you are part of our onboarding and our process for everything. All new hires read your books right when they start. We just want to ingrain that from the very beginning. And so really going into like, what do I know for sure? Why do you think we naturally anticipate the worst? And why do we just build those stories up? I think that we are just hardwired for defense and surveilling for danger. But I also think that we've overused the part of our brain that is ego, is the most primitive part of our mind. And it has such limited options. It's like fight, flight, fawn, freeze. Like when we kind of, I call it talk lay down and we use the most primitive part of our mind, we are looking for what will kill us and we're ignoring in that moment all the things that could please us. It's a survival technique. It's really a defensive stature. We're wired for it. And it's really up to us to not just toggle down to our most primitive nature. If you want to live content in an imperfect world, you get, need to get really masterful at moving into not just the lowest common denominator and moving through the world in the most unskilled way. You have to consciously be saying, I'm going to toggle up and use all of my intelligence, use all of my knowing. But you got to practice that. You can't do that in the moment you need to if you haven't practiced that. If the key to rewiring our brains is practice, practice, and more practice, I wanted to know what other areas of our perspective Sai recommends rewiring. When we're writing the book, I did not make an outline and I didn't write from like beginning to end. I didn't write this book for how you should live, but what I've learned helps me live. And so it came up by topic, like, oh, if I were going to cover like some of my key truths for myself or my key learnings, what would they be? And gratitude came up on the list. And I'm like, I am not writing about gratitude. It is an overdone topic. And it just kept coming and knocking at my door. And not only did I write about gratitude, but I wrote two chapters. I just couldn't stop writing. And gratitude doesn't start with like, let me look at something that is causing me pain and suffering and just see it positively. That is not gratitude. The way that I talk about the three questions is you have to undo yourself before you can redo yourself. Like you have to unpack and unlearn the ego's view of the world, see reality, and then you can move into gratitude. So we naturally see the negative, but you have to kind of be consciously seeing the positive to offset it. And so if you can notice something positive, you can kind of rewire your brain. You can change your thinking where what you notice or pay attention to improves the quality of your life because you see more of that. So I started early on in my life to keep a gratitude list. And I'd write down at the end of the day, like things that I was grateful for. And one of the things I find with all of my self-care practices is that routine and habit leaves room for the ego to come in and like morph my work. Like you always have to be quietly taken over. So I would make these lists and I became superstitious without really noticing it, I'd go through my day and I'd write down the things I was grateful for. And it became almost a list I was giving to the universe about things I preferred. 
because what made my list that I was grateful for actually was just a list of things I liked. What didn't make my list were things of things I didn't like. So it was almost my ego going through my day going, okay, universe, more of this, less of that. My gratitude list became like a rating of what happened in my day instead of an appreciation of what happened in my day. So I then moved from, instead of counting my blessings, I want to move to true gratitude is when I can count everything in my day as a blessing. And that's a whole different way of seeing, like during the pandemic, I had one candle and I love candles. And because I had one, I increased my appreciation the value that candle played in my life. It was like, I increased the appreciation by my focus and my care on that candle. I didn't, I enjoyed that candle more than if I'd had a hundred candles. It wasn't about prosperity. It was about the appreciation. So that's a good part of gratitude. But what I had to really start to do is I would think about my whole day. So I'd write the key milestones and I would write a gratitude list. And I became very interested in the gap. Why didn't everything that happened make my gratitude list? Let's unpack that, right? Got a new client. That's an easy one. You know, lost a contract. That didn't make it on my gratitude list. How could it? What do I need to do to transmute losing a client and put it on my gratitude list? Could it be my teacher? What did I learn about how I could have worked with them differently? Where was maybe I unprepared? So how can I be grateful that I lost that client today because I can really up my game in a lot of ways? Sometimes we prematurely judge something and we don't have perspective. I tell a story in the book where I had this incredible client taking me and my family to Australia for a year. And they canceled the last minute. Now, could I learn something from that? Yes, legally, have a better contract. But also, if you would have asked me that month, could I be grateful for that? I honestly said no. But here's what happened. Another thing hard to be grateful for, both my mom and my sister were diagnosed with breast cancer within weeks of one another. Had I been in Australia, I could not have been there for them. After the fact, after my mom and my sister recovered, my mom ended up passing away. And I look at the time I had with my sister and my mother, I can see in retrospect how kind the universe was. So now if I can't transmute something from it happening to my gratitude list, I get suspicious that my perspective is too small. So I totally changed the way I do gratitude daily practice. It is not about my bargaining with the universe for more good. It is sitting in a peaceful place knowing it's here to evolve me, transform me, teach me, or bless me. And in the end, it's all good. I love that. And one thing that really stood out to you when you talked about the old Buddhist morality tale of, is it good? Is it bad? Or who knows? I loved that because it allows us to remain open and curious. And so I, I just really loved that point. We are so quick to name things that happen externally, good, bad. We name people idiots, jerks, geniuses, if they think like us. We're so good at trying to name things. So what I tell people, if you want to improve your state of happiness, stop naming things too soon. Stay curious 
for external things one minute longer. You know, my kids, when we were in um, Portland, we play this game called Homeless or Hipster. Now, it sounds like an insensitive game. But when you name things too soon, you can be wrong a lot because in Portland, sometimes the hipsters are dressing more, you know, resembling that perhaps they don't have stability in their housing situation. And it's kind of a reminder to us that externally we name things too soon and internally we don't sit with our feelings until they tell us their name. We get a lot of information if we would go within and really work to name internal things. What is this feeling and what information does it have for me? But instead, we stay away from our feelings. We say disembodied and we identify this, the ego's work with the external world. So we name things too fast externally and it robs us of the experience. And then we're like, life isn't that meaningful. It's kind of boring. And we don't name things enough internally. Oh, that's such a great point. And then one thing too, because I know you are also such a big reader um, and going from gratitude and appreciation, one word that you greatly appreciate is the word and. And this one also really stood out to me. And I know we have a lot of working women who listen to this podcast who are so incredible. And I think one thing that you said, you know, people would ask you, well, how do you run a business and have your children um, and raise them. And it's like, okay, well, there's there's different perspectives on the word and, and I can have and, and it doesn't have to be but or or. Could you expand on that? I didn't realize as I was writing, these words came out. I have a whole section in the book on like meaningful words that have really changed my life. Like just walking with a single word and reflecting on it and using it as a tool has completely changed my life. And and is one of them. It's like this little tiny A-N-D. It's like a superpower. What I heard so much of is people would ask me that question. They would use and, but what they're really implying was or. Are you a mom or are you a working woman? And even me, I would be like, gosh, I really want to retire. And it's like, do I want to keep this pace of working and, and help me loosen and see a whole bigger perspective, but also be more self-compassionate and also not weaponize it. So like when people would ask me, like, how would you work and raise kids? The implication was either you have to have figured out a way to do it all, which isn't out there, or you're ignoring something in rotation. And for me, the word and brought these together. It's like, well, should I be successful in my career or be a great mom? And it's like, well, wait a minute. That's not even the question. What if when I'm working, I focus on how I can enjoy my work? And when I'm with my kids, I can focus on how I enjoy my kids. What if it was not about how can you be one or the other? Those are just roles. My true goal is enjoying my life. So I've used the word and to grow things beyond the limited situation I'm presented with. And so I started to ask myself more about, it's not should I retire or should I keep working? It's about how can I shape my work in a way that allows for some of those things today that I look forward to in retirement? So how can I work and travel more. When you start to add on and, be careful that it's not like, how do I do it all? How do I keep everything the same and just do more? No. And ask you, how can you take what you have and do it peacefully and enjoyably? I really love that. And I love one part in here too, that you said it really fosters self-acceptance. 
And it really replaces the word, but if you could expand on that part a little bit, I loved that. My mom used to say, Sai, you are perfect. And you could see some improvement. So many times if we hear a piece of feedback, like you're not coming across as organized, we take it as the only thing we are. Oh, I'm disorganized. So we either defend it and don't look at it and deny it. And it becomes our shadow side. Or we go so deep into it. Yes, I'm horrible. I stink. I probably shouldn't even own a business because I'm disorganized. And then we get really violent with ourselves. We're like, I'm going to stay up all night and make my list and get organized and, you know, declutter this house. It's like, wow. What if you could just use the word and that, you know what? I'm disorganized at times and I'm organized and It's not justifying, but it helps us with our own acceptance. Like we can be perfect and enough and incredible and have a place to grow next. The and just softens it all up so that we aren't one thing. We're so many things. Exactly. We'll pivot into now another word of yours, given. So I loved the word given in here as well. And it was kind of like, this is the reality. Let's accept this. Um, So if you could expand on that word now. Given is one of those words that helps me take what the ego is about to use as an excuse and just put it back into my reality to kind of radically accept it and not go into wishful thinking, not go into victimhood. It just puts me back into play. Let me tell you, maybe give you an example. Like if somebody comes to me and let's say we're planning a dinner tonight and somebody says, well, the person who is going to help with the cooking is ill and isn't able to come in. So obviously we have to cancel. They're using what just happened to predetermine our outcome. And it's so tempting to go into like, well, that sucks. And what was me? And I had all this planned and now I'm going to, you know, lose this evening. And it's like, it's not an excuse why you have to cancel. It doesn't mean dinner's going to stink. It doesn't mean I have to become a victim. If I just take this simple word and I go, huh, given that we won't have Rose's help tonight with dinner preparations and we want to have a spectacular dinner, how could we? And so it's taking some a disruptor that comes up and it keeps the energy away from why we can't. And it manages the energy towards how we could. And it may be, given this, how could we? We can simplify the menu. We can reach out for help. It doesn't automatically mean we're doomed. And a lot of people have reasons, stories, and excuses that come in first as just a change in their reality. But without using the word given, they're like, oh, well, then obviously we can't. And so we're so often doomed by what's happening before we've even explored, are there multiple ways forward? Focusing on solutions rather than problems is a key strength of successful leaders. But before you can lead others, you must lead yourself. Many think that leading yourself just means taking care of yourself. But Sai believes there's a difference between self-soothing and self-care. I asked her to elaborate on these two terms. Even before the pandemic, working with many entrepreneurs, it was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to work my tail off and then go on a grand vacation. And one day it kind of hit me. It's like, what if I just planned a life I didn't need a vacation from? 
even a good thing like massage isn't always self-care. And what people do a lot is they have pretty outrageous, like, lifestyles out of balance. And then they try and fix it with what I call self-soothing. And self-soothing is like, how can I numb or put on hold for a while or procrastinate? Like, how can I take a break before I go back to the same worlds that caused me pain? And self-care is how do I have daily habits and dedications that keep my energy supply high, that keep me restored and renewed, not just soothed or numbed. So I really started to teach people the difference between self-soothing, which is I am exhausted and I want to take a break, and self-care. So during the pandemic, much surprise to myself, I stopped all alcohol. Like I was shocked by this. Like it kind of stopped me. But what I found out is I would be like, I'm getting anxious. And so I want to have a glass of wine. And while that first wine feels good, it interferes with your sleep. It actually increases your anxiety. Like it was like, I had a stressful day. I'm going to have a glass of wine instead of spending time to catch up or unplug. It was like, I just procrastinated. Now I'd wake up the next day with an even more stressful day because I didn't feel that good. And I was like procrastinating. And I just started to realize how many of the things I do were a way to escape my world. And instead of building a world I didn't need escape from. Now, a lot of your listeners are hustlers. They're going to be like, oh, so I just have to not grow my business and I have to quit hustling. No, that's where and comes in. And brings in the innovation. The more balance and peace I have in my life, in fact, my mantra is, as the world picks up again, I will not go back to scheduling anything I cannot do peacefully. Like, no more red eye. Am I capable of red eyes? Yes. Am I going to do them? No. Bizarrely enough, since I have gotten so into self-care, when I do approach my work, it's so impactful and I'm so clear. My business during these times have grown and changed. And I sometimes have to call my team for a reality check. I'm like, I'm only working a couple days a week. Like, are we good? They're like, no, the plan's working. We're all fine. I'm like, but it doesn't feel like horrid. We are so conditioned that if we're succeeding, it's going to feel pretty awful and we need a break from it. And we do these things that soothe, like Netflix binge or, and so I would talk to people and they're like, I'm so tired all the time. And I'm like, what are you doing? Come home from work. You're like, well, I'm so exhausted. I kind of like, you know, end up binging on Netflix. I'm like, do something really daring. Go to bed every night at nine, wake up every morning at six. And so many of us run ourselves in the ground, then soothe ourselves, never fully restore, and then run ourselves in the ground and self-soothe. So I love to, when you kind of talked about setting these boundaries with the way that you're like, I'm not going to take a red eye anymore. I'm only going to do things that I'm very intentional about. And so most of the people who listen to this podcast, they are lawyers and most of them, you know, a common reason for doing this is to help other people. But sometimes we may be generous for the wrong reason. So I love here when you said that true generosity is that which you can do joyfully and without expectation of payoff. And so can you dive into that? A great question for people to ponder is like, what is my busyness keeping me from knowing? I'm a really generous person. It is 
in my DNA. I have no shame about it. And as with all of the awesome strengths we're born with, the ego can use that best part of ourselves with motive. So I started to realize that many times my generosity is without expectation of repayment. And many times it is with motive. Like I want your approval or I want your love or I want your appreciation. And when it doesn't come, I get ticked. And that's how I know it wasn't generosity. It was overgiving. And I realized all of a sudden that um, help can be the sunny side of control. I look at all these controlling people and I'm like, I'm nice. I don't control other people's lives. Oh, yes, I do. I control them through giving and overgiving. And a lot of times I rob them of their own development. I give help before it's even requested. Somebody comes to me and they're like, gosh, I'm really struggling financially. And like, oh, I have plenty. Let me give you a loan. They never asked for that. And they're like, oh, okay. And then I'm like, they weren't grateful enough. And then like it sours our relationship because a lot of times we give so that we don't have to feel anxious about your situation. And for me, a lot of times giving was about wanting to be liked, wanting to be approved of, wanting to be seen. Like a lot of my generosity was I wanted to control how you saw me, that you never saw me as like selfish or unkind. But what happens is when we overgive, we abandon ourselves in order not to be abandoned by somebody else. And it usually leads to double abandonment. And it's so interesting that you referenced like the personality to test and everything. As you know, we're really big on all of that here. And, and so I'm thinking in my head, the reasons you overgive might be for different reasons than someone here who maybe they just want to focus on winning and succeeding and achieving. And they might overgive because it's going to slow them down if they don't just fix that problem. And so there's different motives within that. And I guess with that, what sort of questions would you recommend someone asking themselves regardless of their motive, but if they fear that they might be overgiving, what should they really reflect on? I've had to really look at my giving from a lot of different ways. And so the first thing I asked myself as I was overgiving is like, truly, like, what's the state of my giving? Like, let's take a little inventory here. What have I given recently and what felt satisfying? What didn't feel satisfying? What was the environment where I tended to give and was there pressure there? Was I seeking a motive? And what did it co-create in my life? Like, how did it turn out? And I had to really look at like, what was my underlying need in that moment? Was my need to just get crap done? Was my need to be liked? That is the power question. So look at what I'm giving and then look at in those moments, what was the underlying need? And if you don't identify that, like, what's my need? What are you so scared of if you wouldn't have jumped in and saved it? Right. So my need a lot of times is to look good in business or my need is, I may say, is always to serve the client, but my need is for the client to never get upset. And then when I look at like, how's that turn out, then I complain about clients who don't do their own stuff when I ask them to. But what's the real outcome is I keep clients that are needy and not my favorite. And then I had to, you know, really like step in and say like, what belief gets in the way of that? 
And this sounds bigger than it is. If you just start noticing when you overgive and why, it will just point you to where you need to evolve next. And so what I've started doing a lot is just taking a time out and going, you know what, I'm going to get back to you in a few minutes with kind of a more thought out solution to that. So what I've done a lot with my own beliefs, though, is like write down if I'm scared to say no, the worst thing that could happen and then really see how likely that is and if I can live with it and then go the other way. Like what is the best thing that could happen and live with that? So even if I give what I was intending on giving, I've at least am doing it more intentional, but I've had to get really comfortable with being uncomfortable. And if you can work on cleaning all this up, you won't be throwing pieces of yourself at everything, trying to control the world. You'll be a centered being in the world. And what that does is it leaves everybody else their own stuff and they evolve because you're not out there fixing everything. Now, I said to my therapist one time, I'm like, so I'm not supposed to fix anything? She goes, oh, no, Sai, you're in the business of a fixer. You fix stuff. She goes, here's your rule. If they're going to pay you premium price, then be their fixer. But don't do it for free. And I'm like, oh, so all you legal folks out there, all you lawyers, you don't get paid to solve your employees' problems, but you do get paid to solve your clients' problems, right? I had to think, I'm like, but my whole career is fixing people's problems. My counselor's like, easy rule. If they're paying you premium price, fix, enable them, do whatever you can. But if you're not getting paid, stop it. That's a great perspective there. So I say with this, you know, like I mentioned before, this book was such a moment of self-reflection for you. And I just really, really appreciated the vulnerability, the things that you exposed within this book. And if for anyone who's listening right now to this conversation, if they could have just one takeaway, what would you suggest that be? I would say my favorite quote right now is if you learn to trust yourself you will know how to live. And that takeaway is stop connecting with the external world to really embody, follow your breath in, understand what you're feeling, spend some time with yourself and evolve yourself and get to know yourself and know your preferences and your desires and your limits. There's so much good information that happens when you get internal that you're not using. And so you're operating without good information most of your life. You're doing things the hard way. That is so true. And I think everything, especially through this pandemic, through reflection, it's all about evolution and just continue to be the best version of yourself. Absolutely. And of course, as we come to a close, you know this question, what does being a game changer mean to you? Right now in my life, being a game changer means being an elder. And as an elder, talking without ego vulnerably about this thing we have called the human condition and helping other people see that they are enough, they're doing enough. Success isn't only defined by what we accumulate in life. And to be an elder, you have to be both a mentor and an intern at the same time. You have to be learning and being willing not to just impact the world, but to be impacted by the world. And so I'm working to move through the world. In my 40s, I had like lots of impact. And now I want to be impacted by the world so that what I bring to the world 
may have even bigger impact. And I think that is doing a lot more unlearning than learning and allowing a lot of things to fall apart and really forging wisdom internally so that we can move through the world with big love. And it sounds weird, but if I had to say in one word what a game changer is, it's it's love. Like there are so many ways to move backwards with hate or critique, but there's only one way to move forward. And it's really like loving. Like I want to love people up and then call them up. And I think that's what the game changer does. We love people up and we call people up. I want to give a huge thank you to Cy Wakeman for taking the time to speak with us today. What particularly resonated with me was when Cy said that the simple act of reframing your language has the power to change why we can't into how we can. You've been listening to the Game Changing Attorney Podcast with me, Jessica Mogul. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you can share it with at least one ambitious law firm owner you think could benefit and leave a five-star review. For more information on our interview with Cy Wakeman, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com. And join us next time for a very special episode of the Game Changing Attorney podcast featuring Michael's conversations with some of the most elite athletes on the planet. Endurance, ultra endurance, adventure, anyone could do that. Young, old, male, female. It's more about your life experience, your resilience, your ability to suffer, sleep deprivation, the overall toolkit, as well as that physicality. And it's not about how good am I today, but how good am I tomorrow, the next day, next week, next month. And that ruthless consistency to perform. That's next time on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. Podcast.